I'm Marianne Pina. And I'm Joe Frotcham. Welcome to American Narratives. Well, it's great to be here today, and I'm really excited about the guest we have, Colleen Townsley Brinkman. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Joe. Hi, Marianne. Uh, it's great to have you as, as a guest. We've known Colleen for, gosh, years and have a real history here. And I was so honored when she accepted our invitation to be on the show. Um, she has such a such a cool personal story and professional story. Let me set it up and just give you a little bit of background on Colleen. Uh, Colleen really is an impact, one of those true impactful change agent leaders who has left a true legacy on the communities that she served and been in. Uh, most recently, from 2002 to 2018, she served as uh, in so many leadership roles with North Texas Food Bank, kind of culminating in being the chief philanthropy officer and really helping with Jan move them from, you know, this little food bank to, you know, it's serving about 72 million, million meals a year. Truly amazing. And, and their growth trajectory was outstanding, and so much of it was fueled by Colleen. Um, one of the capstone events was her 55 million capital campaign um, that they did to build new facilities to feed so many million more that have been uh, served by that over the last few years, including during COVID. So her legacy lives on. Um, she's uh, been recognized by a number of organizations for her her impact on the community, her true extraordinary fundraising capability. Um, she's also published a book, Moonshot Leadership, that we are part of that kind of fun little uh, adventure with her. And then prior to North Texas Food Bank, she also had some significant roles um, in Leadership Network, Community of Churches, and as a producer on KXAS 10 TV Channel 5. So very accomplished professional who has now kind of moved into that next chapter of her life. Uh, she's beaming in here from Northern California. Colleen, we're glad to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, friends. Great. Well, Colleen, as you know, one of the things that I love about you is that you've always were willing to share your story. You know, with all of your successes, uh, Shirley, I'd love to take the time and have you reminisce a bit about you know, your, where you grew up, where you were born, and where is your family from? Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay. Um, I was born in a little gold mining village in South India, and uh, my parents were of two different nationalities. My father was a mechanical engineer from California who was also a theologian. My mother was a very accomplished educator and women's rights advocate. And if they were alive today, they would be 110 years old. So they got married in their 30s and had me when they were in their 40s. Um, I will say I had almost a storybook um, childhood, not in the traditional sense, obviously, but I grew up in India completely from birth. And then I left there when I finished high school, 18 years later. I was uh, equally comfortable visiting leper colonies and villages where people had dried mud caked on the bottom of their feet after walking dozens of miles, to being with a prime minister or president of India ever since partition from the British occurred in 1947, every president and prime minister was a friend of my father's and mother's. So we would often go to their home 
or their birthday parties. And so I grew up in these two diverse worlds. I lived in a huge, sprawling, old bungalow, stone, stone, gray stone on the edge of a forest where there were peacocks in the backyard, but also wild boar and snakes. And um, I was sent to the only English-speaking school at the time, which was an hour away. And so for those 12 grades, I was the only kid from the other side of town coming, my sister and I were. And so it was challenging. All the other students were children of diplomats and uh, foreign service officers, and that was challenging, not only because of the economic disparity between our households, but also the racial disparity. And that was the first time I encountered racism and it was a shock to me because color just wasn't part of the discussion in our I'll tell you a story about that. They battled through prejudice when they expressed their desire to marry each other. But as children, we were just taught skin color is not part of the equation. You are kind to people. You are truthful. You have integrity. Um and so what my parents faced in the 40s, both from Indian people and leaders and Westerners, was the fact that you're doing something pretty audacious to consider marrying each other. And then I have 300 letters from many people and my parents to each other that document what was said to them, that your children will be spotted that your children will be Negroid in appearance? Do you think your wife can cook you Western food? Now, this was a woman who was number one in graduate school in economics in India. This was a woman whose mother was one of the first Christian doctors in India. My mother was very bright, as was my father. But that didn't matter when it came down to skin color. You know, it didn't matter their credentials. It was like their skin color defined them on both sides. So my story was a wonderful childhood, eclectic. Um, we had Jan or Hindu priests come into our home. We had people of all religion, all walks of life uh, coming into our home. And I'm ever grateful that my parents just dipped me in that world because it really drives how I think and how I operate every day. And I'm just so grateful for that because there's so many non-negotiables in my world in terms of how you treat another human or form of life. Yeah. In so many ways they were before their time, weren't they? Um, your parents very uniquely. Yeah. To, 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 uh, both date and marry with all that opposition in a very homogeneous society when it came to cultural and race and engage in it, not hide away, not be in a corner somewhere, mm -hmm. but be proud and, and loud and liberated and clear both in their life as an integrated couple and, and how they taught you not mm -hmm. to hate, it sounds like, but to engage and understand, but be proud of who you were too. Um, uh, it says a lot about them and their values, right? And so you touched on on that color and race did not matter to them. Tell us more a little bit about that. What were your takeaways growing up from your parents? Uh, I think that the core value from them was honesty, to always be truthful. And 
the other was caring. Um, a true sign of leadership, which you know, is to treat every human the same. And I will say Jan Pruitt exemplified that. I saw her talk to potential big donors and our warehouse workers in the same way. It was amazing to experience. So my parents were that way. And so that was one of the key learnings about respecting people and um, also listening. Now that was a lesson. It took me decades to really learn because as you know me well, I, I like to talk. But in my last five to seven years at the food bank, I started to learn the lesson and the power of listening because everybody has stories, has their story. And if you just stop, if you pause, if you quit thumbing through your devices and just look into the eyes or into the heart of the other person, a bounty of insight and hardcore knowledge will appear. And then if you're intentional about it, that will help you achieve a goal, perhaps a shared goal with that person, but also whatever your goal is. And so I just think the power of listening was something I observed in my parents, and it took me a while to learn, but I'm a champion of listening. That's, that's you know, and that really is our, our mission here. It's to listen, to know that everyone has a story, a narrative, especially those that kind of represent, represent different levels of diversity who are in leadership roles. What mm-hmm. can we learn from their story? Uh, and there's so much there, so much richness, and certainly in your story too. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we move through this, um, you did ultimately come to the United States, as you kind of foreshadowed for us, uh, when you are 18 years old at the end of high school. What was it like integrating into American society after being kind of those formative years in India? Oh, Joe, you're making me really like peel the lid off the uh, secret bottle here. I landed in San Francisco um, first time to fly by myself in 1971. My older sister was here in college and waiting to receive me. But at that point, I had never been alone with a boy, only in group settings. I had never seen a liquor bottle in real, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) San Francisco during that period. Oh, my God. But in a Western world sense, I was very sheltered. So um, I'm proud that I navigated through those four years of college. Well, you know, I didn't, uh, nothing blew up and all that. But it was, um, I, I had a lot of fun and adapted. And I went to University of the Pacific here in Northern California, which is a, a private Methodist school. I was given full scholarship. I um, made some lifelong friends during that time. And I had fun. I studied, but I had fun. And I attribute my success during that time to the fact that my parents had firmly implanted in me the core values that I still have today, that I didn't go off 
at a tangent. So after um, attending the University of the Pacific, I finished up at SMU, where I was grateful to also get um, financial assistance. And I, um, uh, my dad spoke at baccalaureate, um, which was a big honor. I, I painted, uh, did a lot. I got my degree in studio art, a BFA. Um, and from there, I went into the advertising commercial world. Um, soon after I got married and had two, was in the process of having my second child. So I had two little children when my parents both died somewhat suddenly of cancer, um, within a three year period, they were both gone and I was 35 years old. And I, I basically, this is an emotional statement, but I felt orphaned at 35, I miss them greatly. They had retired here in America in Dallas, but only for about a, you know, a short period of time. And um, at the second funeral, I remember after the second funeral, I was sitting in my office at, at work and I remember this so clearly. I had a deep drive to do something meaningful with my life. I sat there and I, that was a special moment in my life where I had this sense that I need to do something meaningful in my life so that when I die, I can say, you know, my life mattered. And so I had a pretty cushy job at a college at the time, and I decided to go into not-for-profit work. And I, I didn't know how to do make that leap. I was an art degree person. I was a creative marketing type person. And um, so I pulled out my Rolodex, which for people under 30, <laughs> you'll need to Google that word. But I pulled the Rolodex out and I looked up to see who do I know that does work for good. And I thought of ministers and one or two people in nonprofit. I started networking. Um, I was offered some jobs but they all seemed really small in the impact that I knew inside me I wanted to do. So eventually, within a year and a half of this process, I got a job with the Greater Dallas Community Churches, and that's what led me to the NBC studios in Fort Worth where I produced a weekly show. That uh, So that was my step into nonprofit from my parents' death. That was- I've never regretted it. No, they they had influence even beyond the grave, which is amazing. And and it shows the power of those formative years and how we want to be true to that through the rest of our life. And mm-hmm. if anyone has been true to uh, a ministry, a community impact, an acceptance and an embracing of diversity, uh, I certainly think you've personified that, Colleen. And, and uh, that's something I've truly appreciated about you. Let's let's keep progressing through this story. Um all right, so you're at the TV station, uh, uh, you're there, uh, you know, and then you, you kind of move on to some nonprofit and the, the church. How did you get connected with North Texas Food Bank? Can you walk us through that story? What attracted you to that mission? So during the eight years when I was doing the NBC show, I interviewed Jan as a guest, and um, and I met her through Can I interject? Jan Pruitt is the, the previous CEO of North Texas Food Bank. Who, who with Colleen did amazing things. So just a little addendum. So keep going. Sorry. And then, and um, so 
between the television era and the food bank, I was with Leadership Network, which was a four-year period with a think tank that was funded by a Christian uh, businessman, Bob Buford. So during that time, it was a, a organization that was innovative. It, it really helped accelerate the evangelical uh, community in the United States, and they were doing good. What I realized during that time was to really be fulfilled as a human, your passions must be aligned with the work you're doing. 150% alignment. And I didn't personally have that alignment there. I knew that my theology was different than theirs. And so while I gained priceless experience through those years, and I even was invited to go work at Saddleback and do some huge opportunities, I learned that don't let your ego drive your decisions. Because Saddleback's opportunity was enticing to move to L.A. and do this. But I knew that I could tell that my ego was just full, fully uh, blossoming in every single phone call from them. And then I ultimately knew that wasn't right for me. So I just handed my resume, paper document at the time, not digital, to someone who worked at the food bank that I knew personally. And a couple weeks later, I get a, a call from from Jan saying, hey, I know you. I came and interviewed on your show, and I didn't even know Jan was the CEO of the food bank. So we met over Chinese food, kind of uh, a fun little hole-in-the-wall place in South Dallas, and she just asked me, what what have you been doing? And I told her, and she said, well, come get a tour of the, of the food bank. I'm going to be out of town, but the COO, Paul Wonderlick, will give you a tour. I went and had the tour. At the end of the tour, through this quiet, semi-darkened warehouse, sunlight streaming through a uh, portal in the the high-pitched roof, afternoon, employees gone, it was February, I just had this overwhelming feeling. I said, oh my gosh, I had no idea hunger was such a big issue in America. I want to be a part of it. Now, Jan had never offered me a job. We had just, she knew I was looking for my next place. But I called her up the next morning, and I literally got her on the phone right then, which was wonderful. And I said, Jan, I just got the tour yesterday. I want to come work there. And she kind of chuckled, and she said, well, uh, you know, tell me more, or, you know, what do you make? So I told her what I made, and she said, well, you know, we don't have the budget for that. But she started flipping through what I believe was one of those green ledger books, you know. And she told me what they did have in the budget for a position that I could, would be suited for. And I just right off then said, yes, I'll do it. And how crazy is that? How crazy is that? Because we all have bills to pay. I was married. I was a working mom. Right. Uh, My husband was in law enforcement. So, you know, we were a, a middle income family. Um, I never have ever regretted that. I feel like that was a momentous moment for me to put passion over the pocketbook. And that doesn't mean we all have to be, you know, shrouded in ashes and bare, you know, barefoot with loincloth wandering through the forest. But um, 
realign and and don't put money before everything. That just clouds it. Passion over pocketbook. So important. Oh, we're going to we're going to so, quote you on that one. Passion over pocketbook. I, I love that that, that I, we will plagiarize that one like crazy. I think that is Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I have to ask and, I have to ask just if if you know, I think so many people nowadays are still struggling with finding that career alignment. It sounds like you hit it right in the in the ballpark when you found the not-for-profit world. What would be your the age range of when you found that career alignment? I was 35. Okay. I was 35 at the after the second funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's when I got the job with the Greater Dallas Community of Churches, which was at the time a very powerful advocacy organization. What attracted me and made me say yes to that, which is the same thing with the food bank, is there was a visionary, strong leader who was off the charts with integrity. And when I stepped into that first nonprofit job, he gave me the freedom to transform this sleepy weekly TV show that he had a a contract with into what it turned out to be having greater Nielsen ratings than the Daytona 500 on us on that Sunday. So a strong leader that gives you space. So they have to be self-confident and not micromanaging. Tom was that way. Jan was that way. So, um, so what I would say to um, a person seeking their passion is, I hope it doesn't take the death of someone you love to find your passion, but that's what helped me. Um, I believe you can find your passion by spending some time in reflection about what brings you joy. Now, maybe that you are, uh, what brings you joy is something mechanical, creating something mechanical. Well, you don't have to, nonprofits are not the only place you go to for joy and meaning, but finding the right for-profit company that has culture that aligns with your values, make sure you understand what drives that company. How do they pick people to be on their board of directors um, what is the CEO like? I mean, because that drips down in and will impact your day-to-day work. So I would say spend time reflecting on what brings you joy. And that may sound simplistic and Marie Kondo-ish, but it's true. I knew that by doing something that helps another human being, brought me joy. I knew that from childhood, but I didn't know it consciously till the deaths of my parents. And then I knew that's what I wanted to do. You know, whenever a couple of things, it's not only what you're saying, but how you're saying it there, you're, you light up when you talk about your nonprofit work, you light up when you talk about Jan, you light up when you talk about the North Texas food bank. And, and this is one of those consistent features. Anytime we talk to a leader, um, they light up when they talk about their work because it's more than work to them. It's their mission. It's their purpose. And they've found it. And the it is different for every person, but you got to find it. 
right? Mm-hmm. And that what lights you up, um, because that energy is what catalyzes motion, catalyzes followership and credibility. And it, I don't know that there's one truly sustainably successful leader we've ever interviewed who hasn't found it, you know, their joy, their passion, their connection to mission. And, and if people take anything from this, I think you personify that and articulate it better than most, how important that really is. So thank you, Colleen. Well, and that leads us into, into the next part, right? While the nonprofit space is where you found your passion, the career alignment, um, and it's definitely very rewarding for, for many of us. Um, there's got to be some challenges or mistakes along the way that you may have encountered and, and had quite a few learnings, right? Um, I know we've had st- talked in the past and, and heard, but share with us some of those learnings, Colleen. Oh, I have so many learnings. And, of course, the um, sageness of having being at this point in my life, looking back on 35 years, I totally see some of the big connected dots. It's the learnings. Um, one is certainly once you've identified what your passion is, number two is finding the right kind of leader for you. So often we go into the interview process thinking we're the, kind of the people at the bottom of the totem pole. Well, you know what? They are dead dumb lucky to have you. The right place will crawl over rocks to get you. So um, find the right leadership that then creates the culture for you. As I said, my second nonprofit job while I learned a lot in that space, those four years at Leadership Network, it wasn't aligned for me. What I will say, and this is I've said this to friends who have found themselves in similar roles, not aligned with the mission, I will say you can still learn a lot. I learned a lot during those four years, certainly intellectually and hardcore um, business values. But I also learned... It sharpened the clarity in my mind about how to get the best from Colleen. And so you may be in a role right now, for-profit, non-profit, does not matter. But you think every day, gosh, this is not fun. This is not rewarding for me. Well, try to get clarity on what is making you feel that way because then your next role needs to be a place where that does not exist. So fully aligned with the passion. I also learned that um, I need to have a really strong boss. I need to have someone that I fully respect that brings more to the table than me that has my back. And Jan Pruitt exemplified that. Um, What I also learned is that um, we did not have an HR office at the food bank for many, many years. And HR was handled by the accounting department. So as we grew as an organization, we were able to then create an HR department. And that was helpful. But it really wasn't transformational till we had a VP of HR. 
And that came about halfway through my 16 years there. So my learning from that is that the expertise that comes with people management, human relations, whatever you want to call it, it's absolutely priceless. It's absolutely priceless, and you get the best person. You pay for the best that you can get because I am on the innovation curve. I'm half innovator and half early adopter, so I'm like trying to create the next post-it note and figuring out how to get other people to buy into this new image of post-it note or whatever the innovation is. And if you don't have the right team, which I didn't for many of my early years, I didn't have enough mass of the right people for the right roles, it's really challenging to make moonshots happen. Yeah, that it wasn't till we had a VP of HR that I finally felt I had support and expertise to help get me the right people. Thank you for that learning. I, you, you're right. You have, you know, you are completely dependent upon having the right talent, motivated, engaged, mm-hmm. capable talent around you, and you've shared that before, and it's absolutely true. And and I love the other piece, which is. They're lucky to have you. You've got to go in with that mind frame that I'm here to interview potential employers as much as they're here to interview me. Um, and, and that who the leader is, that's a great litmus test. What the culture looks like, how do people make decisions? How do I feel here? Is there a positive or a, yeah. a negative energy? Um, all really important telltale signs to find your it as a leader and where you can flourish. Yeah, I think we can all agree, you know, leadership matters and the team that you're surrounded with definitely matters too, right? So, you know, Colleen. Wait, Marianne, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. Marianne, you had asked about challenge, and I just want to um, cl- kind of wrap that piece up by saying my greatest challenge was when I was planning to retire in 2015. Um, Jan came to me and said, would you consider staying and, and taking on this $55 million capital campaign? And it's a three-year campaign. I remember being in her car when she threw that question my way. And, you know, I was so exhausted and tired and I was just burned out. It was completely, you know, there was a little bit of smoke from the burned ashes called Colleen. And um, I was ready, I was ready to pass the baton to someone else. But this is another sign of leadership that Jan exemplified is we were in her car, she's dropping me off after a meeting at my home, and she said, you know, the board and I want you to stay to do this. Will you do this and then retire after that? I said yes to her right then. I mean, I there was probably a little pause of a moment, but I said yes. Now, they do, you know, they weren't always, like, in sync, you know. But I had, at the point, 13 years with her. Many great, fulfilling years, but challenging, because she was a visionary leader taking us beyond the moon. But in that moment, there was such goodwill between us and such trust and admiration on my that I said yes. I didn't tell her I was going to think about it. I just said yes. And then guess what happened? Four months later, she gets diagnosed with stage four. Yes. 
Talk about prophetic moment. So one of my biggest challenges was then convincing the staff and uh, the capital campaign chair people. You know, we are gonna we are gonna win at this. I know this non negotiable. We're gonna win at this. I don't know where that deep belief was there, but I knew it, Joe and Marianne. I knew we were gonna achieve the fifty five million dollars, even though Jan wouldn't be standing with us. And so that's a whole nother piece of leadership is how do you bring forward proteges and those, you know, coming up behind you so that they can shoot for the moon. That's another whole aspect of true leadership. Well, Jan, you know, had been doing that to me, unbeknownst to me, I guess, because I stepped into that vacuum and was able to convince the right people to stay on the wagon. And, of course, it was a team effort. And we achieved it and exceeded the goal. Yeah, what an amazing journey, right? 2002, you're like, hey, I'll, I'll work for you. I'll get my salary cut in half, and we'll figure out what I'm doing to – capstoning your career with a $55 million capital campaign. I think the largest in social services history in Texas, while also, you know, funding a 17, 18 million annual budget. Um, it's truly, truly an incredible trajectory with a lot of learnings along the way. So much of it reverberates around Jan and your relationship with Jan. And you, when given the opportunity, stepping in and leading, leaning in, right? And I, I, where there's that juxtaposition of opportunity and, and readiness, uh, she steps away. The board says, okay, she has, she has, she has cancer. We have a $55 million campaign. Do we, do we slow this down, put it on pause? And they said, no, because we got Colleen in the seat. That had to be a real reaffirmer for you. And also a little scary at that point, I imagine. It was absolutely comforting, and the board chair at the time and some of the other key board members did tell me, they said, Colleen, we're here for you. All you have to do is, you know, push the staple button, you know, (laughs) we'll be there. Um, It was never, I I don't, fear is not the right word, Joe. Mm -hmm. I just knew we were going to win it. So I have thought about why did I think we were going to win because Jan was the iconic leader. Jan was the one that people knew in town. I was pretty much of a quiet uh, entity locally. I knew that I wasn't alone. Absolutely. I knew that I wasn't alone. I knew that there were immense numbers of good people around me, smarter than me, stronger than me, that had bigger Rolodexes than me. I just needed to be that orchestra leader that kept the shop sign up every day saying, we're open, we're doing it, here's the update, here's how much more we have to do, here's the no's, yeses, let's keep going, you know. And I loved being in that role. And I also, frankly, was going to retire at the end of the three years, which was very exciting for me. To have because I view it as my third season and it's a time of um, unfettered freedom, and and I love that. But 
and I, and I was also doing it for Jan, you know, cause she, she was a visionary leader. She knew what this additional operational capacity would do. And she also knew what it was like to be at the front lines of hunger. So uh, it was because I wasn't alone, but fear was not part of it. Because I knew we and I wasn't alone. I wasn't alone. Yeah, you know, I think this demonstrates. What I was going to say is that this really demonstrates the the strengths of having the right team together, the the key leadership strengths as well, right? Having a, a positive mindset, thinking big, and having that resilience to keep moving forward and and finish the capital campaign. Yeah, yeah I just kind of. I, I was gonna, go ahead. I'll just throw a quick, quick comment here: is that if we had not as an organization invested in a VP level of HR, we would not have been able to at all achieve the goal. And that was done maybe eight or eight years ahead. Number two is investing in really good benefits and compensation packages because nonprofits often think they can get good talent on a nickel and a dime. And it's hard to do that increasingly in today's world. Um, and third is to create a healthy culture. And all of those things, the business world knows, but the nonprofit world doesn't always adopt those with as much. So I think those were all key reasons we achieved success. That's, that's fantastic. You, you know, hearkening back uh, when you were with your, your, your parents were real trailblazers, right? And truly very uniquely capable, strong uh, people in so many ways, and and I know you took a lot from them, and as I'm sure thousands, so many other people did, but they also dealt with some inequity, some unfairness, right? Uh, what it sounds like is from a, in a very gracious way, but nonetheless, there was some some prejudice at some level, at least stereotypes and some misinformation that people uh, kind of held on to. Do you feel that? In your career, did you ever have to deal with anything that seemed unfair to you? That seemed like uh, you were getting the raw end of the deal um, for whatever reason. Um, and how did you, if you've had to deal with that, how did you deal with that? I think uh, in the not-for-profit world, you tend to be surrounded by people that have somewhat of a shared egalitarian point of view. So racism, sexism, ism, ism, ism isn't as blatant as I think in the other parts of society. That said, um, I remember sitting with a prospective donor in my last couple of years at the food bank. First time to meet him, went to his big office in North Dallas with a young fundraiser from my team. And in making small conversation with him, I mentioned that I was from India. He proceeded to tell me that all those brownies in that country really are trying to come into America at too high a level, you know. So he used those words. Mm. I, I was just stunned to see such blatant racism right then. And, of course, he was reminding me that he has power in the room, not my colleague and I, mm-hmm. and um, we wrapped up the conversation uh, 
quickly after that because I knew in my mind we did not need to spend our time trying to seek his support for hunger. And so we left and we went into the parking lot and we got into our respective cars and I told my colleague, I said, you don't need to spend more time trying to recruit him to help with hunger. Now, most of the people that I had the pleasure of getting to know that supported causes of justice and hunger would never share that feeling. But there, there were subtle comments sometimes when I would mention my daughter and her wife were pursuing careers in Chicago. You could see a facial change in a person because they probably didn't believe that same-sex marriages should occur. Um, I did not feel in large measure that my gender uh, held back at the food bank or in nonprofit work. I would step out to make speeches at corporate gatherings. I would usually find um, younger male executives these are 30 and 40 year olds that would sort of dismiss me when I would try and make small conversation with them because they knew they saw my name tag. They knew I was from the food bank. I didn't bring any value to them. But as soon as I stood up behind the podium, because me and to me. So and neon color world and it has to change and it has to change in small ways and in large ways large ways like policy and laws and um you know public demonstrations peaceful to get minds changed but i think every single one of us have opportunities today if we'll just look up from our device put it on mute, off to the side, look at another person, open our eyes. There are opportunities every day for people listening to this today. I guarantee you there's an opportunity where you can make someone feel better. You will affirm them. You will listen to them. You will see a gap in something that you think you can solve. Those are the things that we need to do every day, and that is a building block for making this a better place, as trite as this sounds, for our children and grandchildren, because it's going to take time. It's all, in my mind, stems from what I believe is greed. I think greed, it's greed for power, for money, for ego, and all of that then drives this human behavior. And I think, you know, we can change it, but it's going to take time. And, and it sounds like we progressed. Yeah, it, it, so most of the people you interacted with, you really appreciated, found value in. They found value in you. Um, that's a good news story, isn't it? That that the innate goodness of most people is there. Um, but we would be naive. You know, one thing. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I'd say is that we would be naive to think that, that there isn't some level of stereotyping bias, implicit or explicit. Um, and, and you, you know, you just shared two examples, one very explicit where someone said something very inappropriate, uh, as a donor and, and you pulled the plug, right. As far as kind of chasing 
them as a donor. Mm-hmm. I completely, thoroughly understand that. I think then there's the implicit, the the less but more subtle. Like they didn't give you the time and attention until you get up in front of the podium and start speaking. They realize you're someone of larger import, perhaps, and all of a sudden they give you that that time, right? So that they did categorize and stereotype you based on being different from them or different from the the profile they were thinking they were going to affiliate themselves with. So those things probably seem unfair, but what I heard from you, and tell me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is you recognize it, you see it, but you trudge forward, right? You don't get stuck in anger. Realize it's there, but, but it's mission first. Is that... Do you think that's fair to, to say kind of how you adjusted to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm grateful that through some horrific tragedies in our country, um, some ch- changes starting to happen. I mean, you, you look at the, the trial for George Floyd going on. You look at Breonna Taylor. So many things have happened, and and I know it's in – it's reflective of many different cultures that have different shades of brown to black. You know, we all have our story. Um, and it's all because, you know, the power shifts are happening in our country. There are more people coming here from different parts of the world. The population's shifting. And so it's the sharing of power, which is causing all this turmoil. So I believe, um, I believe one must keep it in their forefront. And this is what I'm talking about, about opportunity is that as you go about your daily life, you know, admit we are all, we all have our biases. We all have our biases. Mm -hmm. We are not sitting the three of us on, you know, lofty ivory towers, right? We are people of the 21st century. We are who we are. And so all humans, we have to admit we have biases and let's just pause and listen. I mean, it's hard for me sometimes to do that when I know I'm talking to someone who voted for people and issues completely anathema to my mind. But I'm, trying to force myself to say, listen, figure out the core genesis of why they believe that way, and then try to have a conversation with them. Um, I I love this saying that um, I found recently, and it's from an African tribe, and pardon me, I want to just read it, just a few words, but there was an anthropologist who was in Africa in the in the bush with a tribe and there was a game that the children played and the man leading the game put a basket of delicious fruit near a tree trunk and he told them the first child to reach the tree will get the basket with all the fruit well guess what these kids did they all joined hands and they all together walked to the basket to get the fruit so the man said why did you do that you know, if you had just individually run, one of you would have gotten there first and you would have gotten everything. And the children said, I am because we are. I am because we are. And to me, that is what drives, I try to drive my life because we're not singular contributors just all the time. We have to link arms. 
I love that, Colleen. You know, there's been a lot of learnings today from your stories and your experience, and we appreciate that. You know, as as we wrap up the, the interview, any last thoughts or advice you would give to our audience? I would just reiterate that pause, exhale, clear your mind. It may take a year and a half like it took me. Find your passion. Have your courage to pursue your passion, passion over pocketbook. And third, know that even when you do find your passion, it's not roses every day. To make impact in your life and to be fulfilled, you have to go through not only the lush gardens, but also gardens made of thorns. But it's worth it. And I wish you all the best. And, you know, I'll just close my comment by saying I am because we are. Thank you so much. That that I, I actually am spellbound. I actually think there's there's uh, there's real wisdom there on so many levels. And and one thing I will just say, just I derived is kind of a a key remembering is we can't live in an echo chamber. If we don't have people around us who think differently than us, and we're not listening to them, we're not learning, right? If whether that be political, religious, uh, racial, whether if if you are in an environment where everyone's thinking and feeling the same, uh, you're probably not stretching and learning. And and that is such the heart, the curiosity, and the ability to suspend judgment and truly listen for deep understanding for someone, anyone, especially those that look, those people that might look at the world differently than you. Mm-hmm. If we if we all did that, we'd all be in a really interesting place, wouldn't we? A good place. So thank you, Colleen. I think that's great. And um, thank you. American Narratives is brought to you by CMP, a minority and women-owned firm providing solutions across the full talent life cycle, from recruitment and assessment to leadership coaching and career transition solutions. To learn more, visit www.careermp.com. 